Enriched. What was that? Oh, that was Mary J. Blige and Method Man with I'll Be There For You slash You're All I Need To Get By. And we'll hear the original on this episode. I recognize it because I got those Wu-Tang solo albums. Uh, I'm not supposed to be on this one, so bye, everyone. Yeah, get out of here. Bye, Rich. Bye, Rich. Welcome to This Is Comp, a chip off the old block of Discord and Rhyme, where we go through various artist compilations and talk about every single song. We're on Twitter and Instagram at Discord Pod. You can get early access to these episodes by signing up for our Patreon at patreon.com slash discordpod. I'm Phil Maddox. I'm Ben Marlin. And I'm Amanda Rogers. And we are on disc two of Motown, the complete number ones, tracks 14 through 19, still the heart of what people think of as Motown stuff at this point. Yeah. This is just classic after classic town here. So unless anybody has... Any other prelude they wish to talk about before we really dive into the meat of this? Nah. Going once? Going twice? All right, let's start with track 14 from disc two, which is I Second That Emotion by Smokey Robinson and the Miracles. What a song. So good. Maybe you That slice of happiness was I Second That Emotion by Smokey Robinson and the Miracles. For the song's origin, I can't do better than, than the very concise Wikipedia description, so here you go. One morning in 1967, Smokey Robinson and Al Cleveland, a songwriter at Motown, were shopping at Hudson's, a Detroit department store. Robinson found a set of pearls for his wife Claudette. They're beautiful, he said to the salesperson. I sure hope she likes them. Cleveland then added, I second that emotion. Both songwriters laughed at Cleveland's malapropism. He had meant to say, I second that motion. The two were immediately inspired to write a song using the incorrect phrase. Now that's an amazing origin story. What's funny to me is that even if Cleveland had gotten the phrase right, I second that motion, it's just a weird thing to say in casual conversation. Like, I get the point, but it's still awkward. Were board meetings all the rage in the 1960s? Could he just as easily have joked, the eyes have it? Or, now let's take a 45-minute recess for lunch. Yeah, this must have been during that period in the 60s where it was fashionable to conduct all your conversations according to Robert's Rules of Order, right? Wait, are you, are you saying that that's currently not fashionable? <laughs> well, I do it all the time. But this I would explain I why I'm not getting throwback. invited to any parties. <laughs> I second that motion. <laughs> Half of CNN's series on the 60s was just about Robert's Rules of Order and board meetings. <laughs> In any case, we were left with a classic turn of phrase, which Smokey and Al turned into a classic song. 
This is the most joyful Motown song, maybe the happiest too. And Motown didn't always do happy. The Supremes were all about heartache that you got from your significant other doing you wrong. The Four Tops were about sitting in a dark house at night stewing over the love you've lost. The lyrics in this song don't even bear out the happiness of the music. They're about trying to convince someone skeptical that they should be with you. And then just before each chorus, it veers into joy. But at least lyrically, it's not fully convincing. But the music, there's so much going on, and yet it's also coherent. You have the horn charts, the Marv Tarplin guitar lick, and the usual Motown guitar chanks on the three, the drum beats that are practically a hook unto themselves, and Smokey's life-affirming lead vocal. It's Smokey's version of the wall of sound, and Smokey never murdered anyone. <laughs> I second that emotion as a joyful song, definitely one of my top few Motown songs. What about you guys? Oh, it's way up there. This is just a gorgeous song. Such a great vocal melody, a great arrangement. I don't have a whole lot to add that you didn't already say. This is just a very great song. I'll just point out that as the resident deadhead here, I've heard a lot of Jerry Garcia solo concerts, and this was clearly one of Jerry Garcia's favorite songs because it shows up constantly. He just always played this song. And What were his performances of it like? Um, pretty close to the original, except, you know, obviously a lot more stretched out and he'd play a lot of guitar solos. Mm -hmm. It didn't quite work as well as the studio original because the studio original of this here by Smokey Robinson, A, had the benefit of Smokey Robinson's voice, which hmm. Jerry Garcia just doesn't have. And this song is so snappy and concise and stretched out, it kind of becomes a different thing. I've never heard a version from Jerry that's as good as the original version of it, which is not to say that I don't like Jerry Garcia's versions, but this song is basically perfect, and it's pretty impossible to improve on it. It's funny, because from the, the last set of tracks that, that I was on, The Hunter Gets Captured by the Game by the Marvelettes was also covered by Jerry Garcia, so he seems to have been a big Motown fan. If you, if you listen to Jerry Garcia solo concerts, it's mostly him covering Motown. That's awesome. He yeah, loved Motown, and when he wasn't playing with the Grateful Dead, he took the Jerry Garcia band out on tour and would just blow off steam by playing his favorite songs. He played How Sweet It Is to Be Loved by You at most of his shows, just a nonstop barrage of Motown in the Jerry Garcia solo catalog. I would not have predicted that, but that's great. Yeah. Well, I'm just relieved that the Miracles are back. At hmm. last. This song is so good, I, for all the reasons you guys said. And you can really hear how their style has changed since Shop Around and You Really Got a Hold on Me. It's gotten a lot more modern and skews a little more toward, toward the pop end of the musical spectrum, I think. And it's a really, really great evolution of their style. And I mean, the singing is spectacular, as always, both lead and backup. Smokey Robinson had one, just one of the smoothest voices I've ever heard, and he sounds just terrific here. He was in top form. At least in terms of the stuff that shows up on the Motown number ones, I think this is easily the best Smokey Robinson and the Miracle song to date. I think mm -hmm. as good as Shop Around is and as good as You Really Got a Hold on Me is, this is next level. This is really yeah, good. Definitely. Yeah, definitely. And he'd had a lot of songwriting practice, too, at this point. Yeah, he was really the real deal, because not only mm -hmm. could he write great songs, but his voice was his voice. Yeah. Which <laughs> is just amazing yeah all right let's move on to track 15 the temptations ah the temptations 
<laughs> with I Wish It Would Rain. <laughs> Sunshine, blue skies, please go away. A girl has found another and gone away. With her went my future. My life is filled with gloom. So day after day, I stay locked up in my room. I know to you, it might sound strange, but I wish it would rain. Listen, I gotta cry, cause crying is the pain, oh yeah. People this hurt I feel inside, words could never explain, I just wish it would rain. I Wish It Would Rain by The Temptations was released in December 1967 and hit number one on the R&B charts and number four on the Hot 100 under the easy listening sensation Love Is Blue by Paul Moriart and his orchestra, with which I am 100% unfamiliar. I like it. Oh, that's a beautiful it, song. It is. It's a it's an instrumental you'd know cover it if you of the song it. that won Eurovision that year. You, you'd recognize it. You probably would. Wait, there's Eurovision before Waterloo? <laughs> Hard to believe, isn't it? Sort of got turned into new slang by the shins. Holy crap, it did. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, this song was written by Norman Whitfield, Barrett Strong, and Roger Penzabine, and produced by Norman Whitfield. So, I've heard this one before, but I haven't heard it nearly as much as other Temptation songs on the radio. It just really hasn't reached the level of cultural ubiquity that some of their other songs have, despite the fact that it was a number one. That said, it's just a great song. It has a wonderful vocal melody, tasteful strings, great backing vocals, and heartbreaking lyrics about wishing that it would rain so that the singer's tears wouldn't be obvious. Of course, nowadays, we understand that it's okay for men to cry. Fight back against toxic masculinity, y'all. <laughs> this song, along with I Could Never Love Another After Loving You, was co-written by Roger Penzabine, who also co-wrote the Temptations hit You're My Everything. The lyrics were supposedly written about his real-life experiences. His wife left him and he was devastated. I'll talk about him a little bit more when we get to I Could Never Love Another After Loving You, which is coming up later in this very episode. But yeah, this is a great song, just... This is, to me... A very good example of the mature Motown sound. Yeah. Just everything falls into place. The vocal melody is great. The production is great. It hits so hard. Just a beautiful, great song. Uh, how about you, Amanda? This is one of those songs that I really like a lot, but it just refuses to stick in my memory. Because whenever, I, whenever <laughs> I see the title, I can only recall the Phil Collins song, I Wish It Would Rain Down. Damn you, Phil. <laughs> Which is an entirely different song. And I just cannot remember how this one goes. But then as soon as I hear that opening piano line, I think, oh, yeah, this song, this one rules. 
And this is a really good demonstration of how David Ruffin was perfectly capable of expressing extreme emotion in his voice while singing in his actual range. You know, you didn't have to stretch him higher than he could really go, as cool of a gimmick as that was. It turns out it wasn't really necessary. Uh, this is just so pretty and sad, and those thin, shiny strings are a terrific detail. They're done perfectly. Was that Ain't Too Proud to Beg, where he yeah. had to stretch his range? Okay, yeah. and that's one of your favorites, right? That is my favorite Motown song. Okay. So I don't I don't mean to sound like I'm like dissing Ain't Too Proud to Beg, because it's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> so... I Wish It Would Rain begins with a beautiful piano opening composed by Barrett Strong. However, the 1962 Burt Bacharach Hal David song Message to Michael, which was sung in 1966 by Dionne Warwick, also begins with a beautiful and very, very similar piano intro. No, you're right. Yeah, anyway. Yeah, that's very, very similar. So I try not to nitpick this kind of thing because I don't think that makes for great podcasting, but this one has always stood out to me. In any case, it's still a brilliant song. I've said on an earlier Motown mini-sode that I think David Ruffin was the best of a brilliant bunch of singers in Motown, and I wish it would rain as one of his best vocal performances. He's so emotive, he's so rich, and so full of pain. And I like that Amanda pointed out that this is more natural for him, that this is within his range as opposed to some other spotlights he's had. It may be the best case for why he's the best. And the arrangement is lovely. It's subtle with just the right amount of strings and, and a short thudding beat that could well have been a backing track by the RZA. And that one's for Rich Bennell. I want to go off for a second about producer Norman Whitfield, producer and co-writer Norman Whitfield. Uh, he's an enigmatic figure responsible for some of the best music ever, but we know very little about him. Uh, a long time ago, Mojo Magazine ran a great article about him, one of the very few times anyone's gone deep on Norman Whitfield. Um, oh. It made him out to be less a musician than a synthesis of sounds that he stole from other more original records or from session musicians who came up with riffs and then Whitfield bought them for a couple hundred bucks and then earned thousands of dollars on them in royalties. Uh, or a guy who let his more musically inclined associates run the show and then just sat back and took all the credit and money. Sort of a pool hall hustler who was more ambitious than anything else. It's a fascinating portrait, and it's backed up by a lot of interviews with people who were there. But as to whether it's accurate, I don't know. But that pool hall hustler made dozens of classic records in a variety of styles for a long time. Nine years after this one came out, he was at number one again with At the Car Wash by Rose Royce. In just a, a different context, a different decade, he wrote and produced that one. So it's hard to believe that anyone can fake that level of talent for such a long time. Even though I Wish It Would Rain came from what I would call suspicious circumstances, it still deserved number one hit. All right, let's move on to track 16. Stevie Wonder and his unspellable hit, Shooby Dooby Doo Da Day. Just once too much 
Doobie Doobie Doo Day was released in April 1968, and it hit number one in R&B and number nine in the Hot 100, under Tighten Up by Archie Bell and the Drells. So, some background on Shooby Dooby Doo Da Day. Uh, the title of the song is a reference to Shakespeare, and if you don't understand it, I'm not going to waste my time explaining it to you. <laughs> the song was written by Stevie Wonder, Sylvia Moy, and Henry Cosby. It was a number nine hit on the pop chart, and it went to number one R&B, which is why we're even bothering to answer its calls. The song came about when Stevie Wonder and Henry Cosby were out buying jewelry for Cosby's wife. Cosby found a pair of earrings and said, they're beautiful. I hope she likes them. To which Stevie answered, shooby dooby doo da day. The jewelry store got really quiet. Everyone stared at Stevie and both men were asked to leave, but they did get a song out of it. Actually, there's not a ton of information out there about shooby dooby doo da day, which I'm going to call SBDBDDD from here out to save time and energy. Uh, even on Wikipedia, you get the equivalent of this song is a song. I want to provide some background on the new instrument we hear here, the clavinet. Although I'm not going to be as, as thorough or accurate as producer Mike would be in these moments, and there's no cute music behind me. Uh, but the clavinet is an electrified version of the clavichord, which was a rectangular keyboard that dates back to the Middle Ages. The clavinet makes a, a sharp, spindly, and unique noise, and it was all over funk music in the 1970s. It's been less in use since then, especially after the tragic gas leak explosion at the 1980 Clavicon World Expo in Manhattan. So just starting off the song, Stevie gets this angular rhythm out of an unaccompanied clavinet line, just him and the keyboard, and it's just incredible. And from there, it builds this steady thumping beat accompanied by a bendy bass line and that clavinet. It's got an unimpeachably fun hook. That's the aforementioned S-B-D-B-D-D-D. But otherwise, it's less a brilliant song than an urgent, exciting rhythm track topped with an exuberant vocal from a guy who, for maybe 12 years or so, could do no wrong. In 1968, if Stevie Wonder decided to sing a song called Shooby Dooby Doo Da Day, you didn't waste your effort being skeptical. You just put all your money on it being a hell of a lot of fun, maybe even an, maybe even an enduring classic, and it was. Phil, what do you think? So I'm familiar with Stevie Wonder's catalog. I'd never heard this on the radio, but I'm familiar with it because I have Stevie Wonder's For Once in My Life album, which is, in my opinion, his first consistently solid LP. Hmm. This is starting to sound a little bit more like classic era Stevie, but he's not quite there yet. I think the clavinet, which everyone would know from Superstition, where it's a very high-profile instrument. Good example. Perhaps the fact that the clavinet shows up mm -hmm. here is why it's starting to sound more like classic Stevie. But it's still not quite up to that level, so mostly it just feels like another high-quality Stevie Wonder 60s hit. One of the most interesting stories told within this box is the rise of Stevie Wonder. From essentially a novelty artist with Fingertips Part 2, to a great hit maker, to one of the greatest artists in the history of popular music. You could get a similar story just from listening to a chronological Stevie Wonder compilation, but it's interesting hear hearing his rise contextualized against the other stuff Motown was putting out, which really makes his artistic growth very clear. Oh, for sure. Yeah. How about you, Amanda? Uh, I didn't know this one before this comp, and I like it, but I'm afraid I don't really have much to say about it. it. It's a good but not great Stevie Wonder song. 
Hmm. Although I have made a number of terrible zippity doodah jokes about the title. <laughs> All right. Up next is Marvin Gaye and Tammy Terrell with their song, which I'm assuming is about why Coca-Cola is superior to Pepsi. Ain't nothing <laughs> like the real thing. <laughs> exactly. finally gotten to King Marvin and Queen Tammy. This is a really exciting chunk of Motown history, and I'm happy we're here. Uh, This one was released in March 1968, hit number one, R&B, number eight on the Hot 100, under Tighten Up by Archie Bell and the Drills. I have no idea what that song is. Do you guys? Oh, yeah. yeah, It was a big hit. Really? I've heard that a bunch of times. I probably know it and just can't think. You'd have heard it. Probably. It's crazy that it was such a big hit because it's basically just a guy introducing his band and then jamming for a couple minutes and then it ends. Hi, everybody. <laughs> yeah, it's a great song, but it's it's a weird pick for a number one or however high it went. It's just it's hard to picture it as a nationwide hit. There's also a joke on The Simpsons where Homer Simpson yeah. played it as a one man band. <laughs> I'm Archie Bell and I'm also the Drells. Oh, this boy. is tightened up, but it's the music you tighten up to. <laughs> you guys suck. <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah, as we're, we're going to talk about this a little bit later, but what hits number one and what doesn't is sometimes just baffling. So anyhow, Ain't Nothing Like the Real Thing was written by, what's this? We have a new challenger. This was written by the songwriting and production duo of Nicholas Ashford and Valerie Simpson, who were a husband and wife songwriting team who wrote a ridiculous number of great songs, including most of Mar- Marvin and Tammy's duets, plus I'm Every Woman, which was recorded by Chaka Khan and then later on by Whitney Houston. Personally, I hate that song, but <laughs> it was a big hit a couple of times, so clearly a lot of people disagree with me. Uh, They've been the recipients of just a ton of awards, including being inducted into the Songwriters Hall of Fame in 2002, and they also had a successful recording career of their own because some people are just unfairly talented. (laughs) As for Tammy Terrell, hers is another just terribly sad story. We keep running into these. Uh, She was born Thomasina Winifred Montgomery in 1945 and started her singing career as part of James Brown's Review. After that, as well as doing a few recordings on her own, she retired from the music business and then spent two years as a pre-med student at the University of Pennsylvania until Jerry Butler, formerly of The Impressions, asked her to do a nightclub tour with him, and that is how she was eventually discovered by Barry Gordy. He is the one who changed her name to Tammy Terrell, thinking it was catchier and sexier than Tammy Montgomery, which is what she'd been going by previously since it was her name. (laughs) 
<laughs> After releasing a solo single on the Tamla label, Gordy switched her over to the Motown label specifically to sing duets with Marvin Gaye, which is one of the greatest moves in all of music. They recorded several songs together, many of which you all know, most of which were hits, all of which were awesome. Unfortunately, though, Tammy's personal life was horrific. She was involved in more than one abusive relationship, including ones with James Brown and David Ruffin. In fact, it was after she had publicly accepted David Ruffin's marriage proposal that she found out he already had a wife and another girlfriend. <laughs> Ugh. And then in 1967, she up and collapsed during a performance. Marvin Gaye caught her and helped her off stage, and this was when she was diagnosed with a malignant brain tumor. And after a few years and many unsuccessful surgeries, Tammy Terrell died in March 1970, just shy of her 25th birthday. As for the song, wow, you can see right away why they were so good together. Their voices mesh just beautifully. We've already talked about what an amazing singer Marvin Gaye was, and Tammy is right up there with him. Her voice is strong and flexible and very, very recognizable. I would not have guessed that she was so young for all of these duets. Her voice sounds much more mature than someone in her early 20s you would expect a sound. Plus, the instrumental arrangement is, it's almost perfect. I really love the strings, but I think they could stand to dial back the tambourine by about half. It ends up dominating <laughs> when it really should just be an accent. But otherwise, yeah. this is just perfection. It's a great description. Just I didn't know all that about Tammy, but I, I just learned a lot. Yeah, I didn't either until I started looking into her. I mean, it's she's a really interesting story and just so sad. Thomasina. Yeah, that's one of the saddest details. <laughs> um. Yeah, so Phil alluded to this before. Uh, it's not any. It's not the fault of anyone who made the song, but for me, it's been cheapened for, by being in so many Coca Cola commercials, which I initially thought when I was looking back were Pepsi commercials, which means that they didn't even work, uh, at <laughs> least on me. No, uh, now that was Ray Charles, and you got the right one, baby. Uh huh. That's right. Yeah. So. Now when I hear this song, as amazing as it is, and Amanda did a great job explaining why, especially in the two singers' voices, I still wince a little because it just it sounds like a commercial, but it's still a warm, happy song. It's wonderfully written by Ashford and Simpson. It's delicately arranged and charmingly sung. Um, Marvin and Tammy's chemistry is evident and touching even decades later. I love the, the subtle percussive blend of gentle drums, playful bongos, and steady tambourine, although I think Amanda is right. There's there's too much tambourine. They, they could have scaled it back a little. Um, and it's not even novel to say at this point, but James Jamerson plays a mind-bending bass line in the background. Practically mm -hmm. every moment of this song is a hook, and it's a great hook. Yeah. I guess what I mean is I'd like to buy the world this song. <laughs> Things just go better with this song. Yeah, Jamerson is such a great bass player. He yeah. is, was. Yeah, and actually, Ben, when you mentioned their chemistry, I realized I didn't mention, for their first few duets, I can't remember for sure if that applies to this song, but I think it does. They were not together in the studio. They recorded their parts separately. Wow. And they were combined later, but you'd never guess it. Yeah. Because they, they, they seem to other. play off each other really well, even though they're not. Yeah. Phil, what do you think? So I, th I think y'all have summed this up pretty well. It's another great song. I have nothing to add that would not just be repeating the points that you guys have already made. So I think we should just move on to The Temptations, 
Ah, the Temptations. <laughs> I will make that reference every time. Good. <laughs> and I could never love another after loving you. Is that the same baseline as my girl? It is. It's oh, very, wow. very close. Never caught that. You're right. Girl, I can't believe I just caught it right now. <laughs> I caught that the first time I ever heard this. I thought it was blatant. That's kind of what the article about Norman Whitfield alleged is that he just cannibalized other records and threw them like he couldn't write a riff himself, but he would hear one that other people didn't really catch and put it all together. And it worked. I mean, just yeah. whatever works, I guess. This wonderfully upbeat song was released in April of 1968, and it hit number one on the R&B charts and number 13 on the Hot 100 under Mrs. Robinson by the Lemonheads. Wait a second. I, I'm receiving words that that song was actually by Simon and Garfunkel and that the Lemonheads only covered it. Yeah, you're My mistake. years too early there. I'm just thinking of Wayne's World 2. <laughs> anyway, this was written by Whitfield, Strong, and Penzabine and produced by Whitfield. So yet another of the two very famous Roger Penzabine Temptation songs and another great one. The lyrics that he wrote here are supposedly inspired by Penzabine's real-life heartbreak, and they're particularly crushing and sad. You know, within the first verse, See, you've taken away my reason for living, and you won't even tell me why. Ugh. Just makes the whole song feel hopeless, as pretty as it is. But one of the reasons that this song and I Wish It Would Rain have become somewhat infamous is that after writing these songs, Roger Penzabine committed suicide on New Year's Eve in 1967 at the oh, age no. of 23. Oh, no. 23. So a lot of people talk about how these two songs were just him expressing the awful romantic pain that he was going through before it became too much for him and he decided to end his life. Which... A lot of people think that these songs portray that. I don't think it's really a fair way to characterize it. It makes a good rock and roll music story to say that the heartbreak expressed here is the reason for his suicide. But people's reasons for suicide are usually very complicated. Mm -hmm. His heart yeah. was broken and he wrote two songs to express his pain before ending his own life. Makes for a compelling story, but it's pretty reductive. Yeah, I think yeah. it's far better to just celebrate how wonderful these songs are than to fixate on the details of Penzabine's tragic death. Yeah, you could swap them out with Eddie Holland lyrics for a Supreme song. And they're they're all great. But I don't know that, you know, if you did a blind test, I don't think you could pick out which one which one's writer committed suicide afterwards and which one was just telling a good story of heartbreak. People like to mythologize. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And. I know I read somewhere, and none of this is particularly verifiable, 
that his ex-wife said that his suicide wasn't related to their relationship, who knows? I think it's in somewhat bad taste to speculate. It's That's in very bad taste to speculate. It's just a tragedy that happened, and I don't like the idea of like trying to like create this great story out of it when it's really just a tragedy. Yeah. But the song itself, divorced from all of that, is wonderful. Boy, is the vocal performance on this one great. It's an amazing vocal performance. Just really sells these lyrics that are just so crushingly painful. And again, this is peak era Motown, so obviously the arrangement is great. The bass line is great. Everything about it is great. This is the time where Motown really could do no wrong. And this is just another example of how good Motown was at this time. This yeah. is probably the best stretch of tracks, I think, in the whole box set, because this is when they were just firing on all cylinders, and every song was great. How about you, Amanda? I think you're right about that. This is a spectacular stretch of songs. This one was new to me on this comp. I'd never, ever heard it before, and I really, really like it a lot. I don't think I like it quite as much as I wish it would rain, to the extent that the songs can be compared, because they're not really all that similar, uh, but it's very, very good. I can't really improve on what Phil said. I'll just say he's right. I, I agree with you as well. I think I Wish It Would Rain is a better song, but they're both really good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd pick this one just because there are no credible accusations of plagiarism against this one from me. I really like the intro. It's got subtle strings and a bongo drum and pretty much nothing else. And Motown wasn't really known for having a lot of space in the mix uh, but the simplicity here is impressive, and it allows the spotlight to fall on The Temptations and especially David Ruffin's incredible heartbroken vocal and the lovely backing vocals by all of them. And this song just has a gigantic resonant hook. And for all of its subtlety, it's also got what Motown always had and what too many 60s studio pop songs lacked, which is a thumping drumbeat that grounds the whole thing. So it's another classic, another deserving number one hit, another deserving oldie station perennial. I give it 10 discords on a rating system that none of us have discussed before and that I have not completely <laughs> thought out. The problem is there are only six discords on the scale, so this song loses a little for going outside the scale, but 10 is still a solid recommendation. It's on a scale of 1 to 15, but it goes down again after 8. <laughs> exactly. There, you figured it out. Maybe after eight, does it go from discords to rhymes? Perhaps. <laughs> I hope all our Good Place fan listeners caught my little, you know, treat for you there. <laughs> well, anyway, let's move on to the last track in this stretch. Yet another Marvin Gaye and Tammy Terrell classic, You're All I Need to Get By. took one look at you and it was plain to see you were my destiny with arms open wide I threw away my pride I'll sacrifice for you dedicate my life to you
right, that was our Marvin and Tammy again. That was released July 1968, hit number one, R&B, number seven on the Hot 100, Under the Rascals, People Got to Be Free, which I know and like. All the world over so easy to Yeah, that's a great one. And as Rich played for us at the very beginning of this episode, the song was interpolated in 1995 by Method Man and Mary J. Blige on the hit duet I'll Be There For You slash You're All I Need To Get By, which is based on a track from Method Man's Tikal album and hit number three on the Hot 100. And yes, I did have to be instructed on how to pronounce that. (laughs) So back to Marvin and Tammy. Not only is this a lovely song, the story behind it is once again heartbreaking. This is among the last songs they recorded together, and this session was very difficult because Tammy was recovering from brain surgery, and she had a hard time making it through the songs. And you can hear Marvin singing Come On Tammy to her a few times to encourage her to continue on. Then about a year after this was recorded, Marvin performed it at a concert with Carla Thomas, and Tammy happened to be sitting in the front row in the audience And she started singing along. And when Marvin noticed this, he came off the stage and handed her a microphone and they finished the song together. It turned out to be her last public performance before her death. And then uh, Marvin Gaye sang it at her funeral and he reportedly really never got over her death. It's just all just so sad. For the song, though, as I said before, it is beautiful. It sounds a little bit different from the other Motown hits around it. It's more soulful, and it's even a little more gospel-influenced. And it stayed at number one on the R&B chart for five weeks, very deservedly, and was the most successful duet recording of Marvin Gaye's entire career. All right, how about you, Ben? Yeah, uh, I like what Amanda said. Uh, Valerie Simpson was on a roll at this point. You know, she wasn't just writing great songs. She was writing era-defining songs that meld seamlessly with the feelings of of first love for millions of people. They don't just have great choruses, which you just needed at Motown. They have complex melodies with drawn-out hooks that take time to reveal themselves. Now, I generally give the composer more credit than the lyricist, since being a writer of words myself, I'm privy to the industry secret that any idiot can do it. Uh, Still, (laughs) Nick Ashford knocks it out of the park with these lyrics. Uh, A melody can do a lot. It can get a song on the radio. It can even make it a hit. But it's not going to remind you of that person or that time without the right lyrics. And Nick Ashford's lyrics here artfully express that the simple, powerful feelings that, that nearly everybody experiences at some point. All the elements from Ain't Nothing Like the Real Thing are here. You have the complex rhythm, that the trilling flute, the singing from Marvin and Tammy that's more deeply human than most humans could ever hope to be. But that just gives us a level of love and joy to aspire to. The song has more varied dynamics than the other song. Instead of keeping a steady clip, it starts off slow and lovely, and it builds up to an effervescent crescendo. And if you want to use that as a band name, feel free to go ahead. It'd be a good band name. All right, with that, that's the end of this episode of Discord and Rhyme. And wait, what's this? Wow, wow, it's a Discord and Rhyme bonus track. Bonus track. Bonus track. It's another Marvin Gaye and Tammy Terrell song, which actually isn't on this compilation, but we had to talk about it. It's Ain't No Mountain High Enough. Yeah, it is. Listen, baby, ain't no mountain high, ain't no valley low, ain't no river wide enough, baby. If you need me, call me, no matter where you are, no matter how far. Don't worry, baby. Just 
Yeah, that's right. I'm sneaking another song in here because this is my very favorite Marvin and Tammy song. And it is a damn crime that it never hit number one anywhere. And also this way we can end the episode on a high. It did get to number 19 on the Hot 100, but only number three on the R&B chart. And I haven't been able to see what the top two hits were because Billboard has put it behind a paywall, those bastards. (laughs) But this was around the time Stevie Wonder came out with I Was Made to Love Her. So that's fine, I guess. Uh, it did get to number one when Diana Ross covered it a few years later, and that's coming up on the next disc, but I don't like that one, so I'm just going to pretend it doesn't exist. <clears throat> what? <laughs> <laughs> this is another Ashford and Simpson composition. Dusty Springfield wanted it, but they held out because they thought it might be their ticket into Motown, and they were right, because this is so good. I absolutely love how this starts. That that listen baby at the beginning is at the risk of adding to the overuse of this word, iconic. Mm. The verses are good, but they're slight, I think, because everybody involved in the song knows that the chorus is absolutely magical, and they just need to get to that chorus and stay there. That could play on a constant loop for the rest of my natural life, and I would be perfectly happy. Yep, it's great. I didn't actually prepare for this song because this was slipped in as a bonus track, but I've heard it before, and it's really good. You've heard this before? I've heard it, yeah. No way. (laughs) I thought only I knew this. No, it's great. I'm sure he's seen my best friend's wedding. So, <laughs> And stepmom. I have not seen those. <laughs> oh! I just know from the trailer. I just listen um, to a lot of music. <laughs> <laughs> and you've probably turned on a radio at some point yeah. in your life. <laughs> I just want to add, beyond the chorus, you have that amazing bridge, uh, which a lot of bridges can be throwaways, but this one that we're... If you're ever in trouble, I'll be there on the double. And it's, oh, yeah. it builds up to this incredible, like, emotional moment. It's brief, but it, it's powerful. Yeah. It reminds me of the Darkwing Duck theme song. When there's trouble, <laughs> you call DW. <laughs> uh, thanks for that, Phil. You're, you're quite welcome. <laughs> on that note, for realsies, though, this is the end of this episode of This Is Comp. So thanks for listening. What do you call this record with all these songs? This is comp, yeah, yeah. This is comp, yeah, yeah. This is comp, yeah, yeah. This is. It's been This Is Comp, a subsidiary of the Discord and Rhyme podcast. The opening theme music for this series is the Motown song by Rod Stewart, featuring The Temptations. <laughs> the closing theme is performed by Kenneth Crayley and is based on This Is Pop by XTC, with new lyrics by Adam Smith of the Hector Collectors. You can hear Kenneth's music at Kenneth Crayley, that's K-R-A-Y-L-I-E dot bandcamp dot com, and his band Casinos at casinos dot bandcamp dot com. And you can hear the Hector Collectors music at thehectorcollectors.bandcamp.com. We'll be back with more Motown soon, but in the meantime, be ever wonderful. 